We're going to move on today. We are in John chapter 12. So like I said, if you have your Bible, join me in John chapter 12. We'll be wrapping up the chapter today. And so if you remember a couple weeks ago when we started this chapter, uh, Caleb walked us through a very tough topic about giving. We looked at how Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, how she anointed Jesus before his death, before his burial, and how she poured out an entire year's worth of wages of perfume over Jesus. And so we looked at just what is Jesus' worth for us? And by implication, what does that have as far as an impact on our giving? And so after the service, somebody stopped me and was like, hey, how, how come Caleb drew the short straw on having to get to talk about giving? Because that's a really uncomfortable topic. And so I want you to know today, like, I wish I could switch back with Caleb because today is a very, very tough topic. And so as we continue to look at Jesus's last public teaching before his trial, before his death, we're going to look at the, the nature of salvation. We're going to look at what is belief and what is unbelief. And specifically, why do some people believe the gospel when other people don't? And so this is the age-old question that we face. And so as I was preparing, I came across a story about Ben Franklin and George Whitfield. And so I think most of us are familiar with who Ben Franklin is, one of the founding fathers. But George Whitfield, we may not be as familiar with, but he was a Puritan preacher. He was one of the fathers of the Great Awakening here in the 1700s, great evangelist. And so George Whitfield and Ben Franklin, they were friends for over three decades. And so Ben Franklin, one of the things that he did, he printed a number of newspapers. And so he would print George Whitfield's sermons. He preserved many of those sermons. That's why we have them today. Franklin, he defended Whitfield from all sorts of critics. And for his part, Whitfield shared the gospel for over 30 years with Benjamin Franklin. Shared the gospel faithfully, prayed for him. But as Franklin would later admit in his own autobiography, he said, uh, of George Whitfield, he said he never had the satisfaction of believing his prayers had been heard. And so how come Ben Franklin never believed, never accepted the gospel despite a constant sharing, three decades worth of sharing from one of the most famous evangelists we've ever had in America? How come Ben Franklin did not believe? And so this is a very, very hard question for us to wrestle with. And know that entire denominations have split over this one single question. And so there's a tremendous weight to this. I feel it today. This isn't a fun topic for me. I've seen this ruin friendships. I'm not particularly excited to preach this. I would much rather move on to chapter 13. But part of the reason why we preach the way that we do, why we believe in expositional preaching is that we don't avoid hard topics. And so while I would never pick this on my own, I would never come to this passage in John chapter 12, we know that God has purpose for us, and so we want to walk through this. And so today, I hope that I approach this with some humility, and as we start, I want you to know that this, even though it, it has caused division in the church over several centuries, this is something that we hold open-handed here at The Journey. So we allow for different opinions on this, and we even allow for very strong opinions on that. But even though there's a difference of opinion, what we want to do is we want to avoid division in this. We don't want to split. 
And I certainly don't want to lose fellowship with anybody, and I don't want to lose a friendship over it. So as we look at this today, we're going to look at the Word, because that's where all of our humility begins. And I want you to know that my opinion on this is ultimately worthless, and that my opinion can be wrong. And so that's why I want to point to Scripture And we're going to look at a lot of scripture today because we know that scripture interprets itself, that God reveals himself through his word. And I want you all to see what God says and not what I say. And even as I say that, I don't want that to be taken as me weaponizing scripture. I've I've seen people say, well, this this is what God says. And so if you don't believe it, then that's on you. That's your fault. And so I want you to know, like I want you to hear my heart, that that's not how we're going to approach that today. So I want to start at the beginning. Actually, I want to start at the end today. I want to start with the conclusion up front. And so even though we're going to be in John chapter 12, turn and look at John chapter 6. And so this is part of how we're going to look through Scripture today. Use Scripture to interpret itself. See how God has put it all together so that we can understand. So in John chapter 6, We're going to look at a couple verses. This is Jesus speaking uh, in both of these verses, one one instance of teaching. So in John chapter 6, starting in verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then skip down a couple verses to verse 44. And it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the context of these verses, Jesus is teaching to the crowds. This is right after, if you remember in John chapter 6, this is right after he's fed the 5,000. This is right after he has walked on water. And so he's teaching the crowds. And so in verse 37, he talks about all that the Father gives, gives to him. And so that is all those that receive salvation. And so the emphasis on the verse is, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so Jesus is teaching us that salvation is open to everyone. That's why the emphasis is on whoever comes. And so Jesus is clear that he does not cast out those who come to him. And the truth is, he will never cast out anyone that comes to him. And so we all have the opportunity today to respond to Jesus. And that's the application for today, that we all have the opportunity to respond. And also... If you look at verse 44, we also see that no one can come unless the Father draws him. And so we see this teaches us that God plays a role in salvation and that God calls people to himself. And so we know that Jesus is speaking here. He's speaking both of those verses within six verses of each other. And he declares both to be true at the same time. He declares both to be true at the same time. And so as we look at salvation, as we look at what faith entails, what belief entails, we want to see that this is a both-and proposition. It's not an either-or, mutually exclusive sort of thing. It is a both-and. And so we see that Scripture acknowledges both of these aspects about why people believe and why they don't believe. And so that creates some tension for us. But we want to acknowledge that tension, but notice that Scripture acknowledges both. And so look at what the ESV Study Bible says about these verses. It says that these verses imply that people should never think. They should never think that maybe I am not chosen by God, and therefore maybe Jesus will reject me when I come to him. Jesus promises to receive everyone. 
Jesus promises to receive everyone who comes to him and trust him for salvation. And yet, a few verses later, in verse 44, Jesus states the paradoxical and corresponding truth that once people come to Jesus, they will realize that behind their willing decision to come and believe lies a mysterious, invisible work of the Father who all along was drawing them to Christ. And so I like that explanation. I like how they, they bring out this point that these truths that we both see that Jesus has spoke on, that they're a paradox, but yet they're corresponding truths. And so when we think of a paradox, that's an argument that derives contradicting, seemingly contradicting conclusions, both from valid deductions from acceptable premises. So you have two seemingly contradicting truths, but they're arrived at through very valid, true, and right means. All right? So that's what a paradox is. And then corresponding, it's an, it means that it's accompanying, that it's a necessary pairing, that these things go together, that they are inseparable. And so what this means is, is it doesn't allow for separation. It doesn't allow for rejection of one. And so as we look at both of these truths, it's not that one is right and one is wrong, that one is true and one is false, but they are both present and they are evident in Scripture. And so we want to see that we cannot deny either that Jesus teaches us both. And so this teaches us that God uses... He uses our human means in order to fulfill what he has ordained. That he uses human responsibility. And we see this all over the place in scripture. And we see it in places that don't necessarily involve salvation. And those are easy for us to understand. We can stomach those a little bit better. And so if you remember back to John chapter 11, just a couple pages back, we looked at this with Caiaphas as he spoke to the Sanhedrin. If you remember what he said in John chapter 11, verse 50, he says, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas is speaking about Jesus, talking about how he needs to die. And as we looked at this, we saw how God flipped this statement. He flipped it on Caiaphas. And so Caiaphas was responsible for his words. He was responsible for the wicked meaning of his words, that he was blaspheming against Jesus, that he intended to kill Jesus. But in God's providence, God directed his choice of words so as to express his sovereign plan of redemption for us. So think also back to Joseph. Joseph in Exodus, sold into slavery by his brothers, spent years toiling away, but eventually God brought him out made him the number two in Egypt. And so when he is confronted with his brothers decades later, do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers? He said, what you intended for evil, meaning what they chose of their own volition, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so we see God's sovereign plan in all of this. And so look at what Edward Clink and Karen Jobes say. All right, this helps explain what we're seeing here in Scripture. So Edward Clink says, Nowhere in the gospel, or Scripture for that matter, are the will of God and human freedom pitted against one another or made to be a problem. And so, again, that tells us that it's not an either-or sort of proposition. It's in our nature that when we see two things that they seem like they're opposed, that we want to make a choice out of it, and we pick one side and everybody else picks the other side. That's not how this is working. And so look at what Karen Job says. 
She says, if God's redemptive plan was to send the Son to atone for sin, then God must have preordained all the decisions and actions that would lead history to the cross of Christ. And yet, and yet God did so in a way that leaves people completely responsible for their rejection of him in Christ. So we're going to dive into this through John chapter 12. So if you have your copy of God's word, we're looking at John chapter 12, starting in the second half of verse 36. So this is what God's word says. It says, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even other rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your truth. We thank you for hard questions to wrestle with because it forces us to go to you and it forces us to rely on you. So God, I ask that you would give us humility today as we unpack your word. Help us to hear you speaking to us. God, I ask that you help me to teach your word rightly. I ask that you help me to avoid my own opinions, that I would speak from your truth. And God, we want to see you. God, we want to know you. And we do that through your word. And so we thank you for your grace that covers all of our sin. And we thank you for your grace that helps us to understand. So we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So, as we approach today, typically I like to go verse by verse. That's how my mind usually works. But we're going to take a slightly different approach today. We're going to take more of a thematic approach. We're going to pull out some of the major themes from this text because there's a lot of overlap between a lot of these verses in this passage. And so we're going to look at three main things today. We're going to look at, number one, the nature of belief. What does belief look like? And number two, we're going to look at the opposite. What is the nature of unbelief? What is unbelief? And so number three, we're going to look at then the reasons for this unbelief. So as we start, as we look at what is belief, what is faith, 
we want to note that belief is linked with a close relationship between Jesus and the Father and also between Jesus and his words. And so Jesus teaches us in verse 44, he says that to believe Jesus is to believe in God. And so verse 44 says, and Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me, he does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And so think of the context, he's speaking to a crowd of Jewish people. And so the Jews, as they reject Jesus, they think that they are actually believing in God because they are rejecting Jesus. They have considered Jesus as a heretic, that he is a blasphemer, so they believe that they are protecting the sanctity of God's word. And so we also see that to see Jesus is to see God. He says this in verse 45, that he who sees me sees the one who sent me. And so to see Jesus is to see God. This links back to verse 41, which then links back to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. If you're familiar with that passage, that's Isaiah's commissioning. He has this grand vision as God commissions him as a prophet, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. But what John is teaching is there that that glory also belongs to Jesus, that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus along with the glory of the Lord. And so to see God's glory is to see the glory of Jesus. We see the unity between the Father and Son because we know that all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture is pointing us to Jesus. So in this passage, we also see that to listen to Jesus is to listen to God. We see that in verses 49 and 50. And so we also lastly see that to believe in Jesus is to believe in his word. And so we see that in verses 47 and 48. And I want to read those. It says, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. And so we see that this is Jesus' call for us to accept and to receive his word. And it's more than just accepting that word and hearing it, but it's putting it into practice. That's why he says that we are to keep his sayings. Because belief in his word, what that does is that produces fruit in our lives. That we would have an evidence, we would have evidence of a changed life as we accept, as we bring in his word. And so this brings us to what Jason just read out of Matthew chapter 13. And so I want to read this again, the parable of the sower. And so this is Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9. I'm actually going to start in verse 3. And so this is Jesus teaching. He says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, were withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then skip down to verse 23. This is Jesus explaining this parable, and he goes through and he explains each of the different types of seed. And so this last, uh, this last type of seed, Jesus explains in verse 23. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. And so we 
when we read this, we want to remember that belief always produces fruit in our lives. That belief, our faith, is always accompanied, accompanied by fruit. That a changed life always, always, always follows genuine belief. And so Jesus here, he gives us what the definition of faith is, what the definition of salvation, of belief. And it's three parts. It's hearing the word, it's understanding the word, and it is bearing fruit. And so this is important because we want to see that fruit does not cause belief, but fruit is the evidence of belief. It's not the causation. And so we don't follow Jesus' word in order to be saved, but we follow Jesus' word as a result of him saving us. So again, we talk about the both and. This is another both and proposition that it cannot be separated, that we cannot just have belief and we cannot just have fruit. And so we want to realize that this is more than just an intellectual knowledge, that as we come to faith in Jesus, it's more than just believing in our head. It's more than just saying a prayer. It's more than just attending a class and learning about salvation. It's more than just being a church member. That faith has a consequential, a tangible effect on our life. And so as an example, I'm up here, I'm teaching you, I'm a pastor, right? And so that has bearing on my life. That if I get up here and I'm unprepared and I don't know what I'm talking about, would there not be evidence of that? Right? Hopefully, if that happens, if I come up here and I'm just rambling and I'm not teaching well, you guys would run me off because there's not fruit of me being a, an appropriate pastor, right? As Caleb and I were talking about this this week, we remembered the story from a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you all heard about it, but you know uh, when government agencies, when they have these big press conferences, they always have one person standing off to the side. And that person, you know what that person does? They're interpreting. They're doing it for sign language, right? Have you seen these press conferences before? So this particular press conference, they had to fire the sign language interpreter because she didn't know sign language. So immediately, I guess whoever was watching, whoever was, was deaf and couldn't hear the message, they're watching the sign language interpreter, and they know immediately that she does not have the fruit of being a sign language interpreter. And I just imagine that person, like, how did you think that was going to go? Like, what made you think this is going to be a great idea? Like, no one's going to find out. Like, they're going to know immediately. And so in the same way, right, our life demonstrates the same sort of fruit, that as we believe, our life points to fruit that we have believed in Jesus. So as we go back to John chapter 12, we also want to see that faith is also the work of God, that God plays a role in salvation throughout this passage in John chapter 12. We see that God hardens hearts. That's clearly presented by John, and it's really hard for us to deny that. It's really hard for us to get around that. And so this, again, this isn't the first time that John has introduced this to us, though. Think back to John chapter 1. Look at John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. In the very prologue of John's writing, he writes, He was in the world, meaning Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So again, we see this both and proposition. We see man's responsibility, that they did not know him, that they did not receive him, but we also see God's work that as believers that we are born according to the will of God. We, see, we saw that as we looked at it, that the work of salvation is entirely the work of God, that he does the work, that he saves us, that he pursues us, he chooses us. We know that nothing human, nothing that we do can bring about a new spiritual birth. And so we saw that salvation is a miracle that only God can perform. And so with that, what is important for us to remember is that those who receive the word, that those who receive the word, they are identical with those who believe in his name, and they are identical with those who are born of the will of God. And it all fits together. They are all the same. So as we go back to John chapter 12, we also see we also see the purpose of salvation, the purpose of belief. And so again, look at verses 47 through 48. It says, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I, sp I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So we see the purpose of, of our belief, and that is either salvation or judgment. And so again, remember back to John chapter three, we've seen Jesus make a familiar statement. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so we see that salvation is based on an acceptance of the word of God, that we have the opportunity to either accept or to reject the word of Jesus. And so Jesus' purpose here is that everyone who believes in him would not remain in darkness. Okay, so everybody still with me? It's making sense? Okay, let's move on to the second part, the nature of unbelief. We want to look at what is unbelief. And so Jesus lays some of this out. And so first thing he says, that rejection of Jesus, unbelief is the rejection of Jesus and his word. We saw that in verse uh, 48 just a second ago that rejection of his word leads to judgment we also see that unbelief is a heart hardened toward God we see that in verse 40 that it's a conscious rejection of God so look at verse 40 this is John quoting Isaiah that he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart I'm popping pretty good aren't I <laughs> I didn't make a note I did That's all right. We love technical difficulties, don't we? <laughs> all right, so verse 40. This is John quoting from Isaiah. He says, uh, He, God, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Right? So we see that this conscious rejection of God, that unbelief is a response of the heart in rebellion towards God. And so what we want to see about unbelief is that it is rebellion against God, that it is a spiritual issue. It's not just an intellectual issue, 
but it's a rebellious heart against God. And so our sin requires a supernatural, a divine solution. And this is why Christianity can never be spread by force. It can never be spread by force. It can never be spread by legislation because there is no amount of external pressure, of coercion that would address the spiritual need of the heart. And so we can't force Christianity on people through a show of force. That's not what God teaches us about unbelief, that it is an issue of the heart. We also see that unbelief, it's a lack of obedience. Look at verses 42 and 43. It says, Nevertheless, even many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so there's a little bit of debate here about whether or not these religious leaders, whether or not they had genuine belief. And so we see that some of them at least appeared to have an intellectual belief, according to the text. Seems like it's an intellectual decision, but you'll notice that there's no obedience. There is no confession. There's no walking with Jesus. There's no evidence that their life actually changed. That as they continued in life, they continued on with the same exact pattern of life that they showed before. And we see the reason why, that they are afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue. They preferred the praise of men rather than the approval of God. And so if we go back to Matthew chapter 13, that parable of the sower, as Jesus explains some of those uh, seeds, these guys fall into another category. They are the seed, they are the person that falls away when they experience suffering and hardship. That these religious leaders, they're avoiding persecution because they don't want to confess Jesus publicly. They hear the word and they understand it, but their life doesn't bear any fruit that it's taken hold. And so that leads us to this last point of why don't people believe? So this is the tough question that we're faced with today. Why do people not believe the gospel? And so as we walk down this road, we want to realize that the starting point always with this question, the starting point is always the sinfulness of man, that unbelief starts with the sinfulness of man, that we as humans, that we are inherently sinful, that we are separated from God by our sin, and that is a truth that is undeniable. We can see the evidence of that in our lives. But look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. Paul writes, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we want to remember that we sin because we are sinners and it's not the other way around we are not sinners because of our sin but we sin because we are sinners and because of that we deserve eternal death we deserve eternal hell eternal damnation that our sin demands punishment before a holy god and that's what the definition of justice is that as we think of justice we want to see that God is not unjust because he condemns sinners, but God is precisely just because he does condemn sinners. And so this is what D.A. Carson says about this. He says that God's judicial hardening, what we see in Isaiah, what John is quoting out of Isaiah, that God's judicial 
hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary, omnipotent deity, cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. So D.A. Carson, that's really wordy. What he is saying is that there is no such thing as someone that is morally neutral, someone that is morally innocent before God, but that God's holiness demands punishing and that we are condemned by virtue of our sin. And so in our unbelief, what we see, we see both man's responsibility and we see God's hardening. Both are present in unbelief. We see man's responsibility in verse 37 of chapter 12. As John writes, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Right? So some of the the crowd that has been around Jesus, been following Jesus, they see all these miraculous signs and wonders, and they still don't believe. Right? There's a conscious decision And so what this teaches us is that the blinding of eyes and the hardening of hearts, that never happens against the will of man. That never takes place against the will of man, that we choose evil deliberately. So again, I want to point us back to John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Jesus has walked us through a bunch of this. He says, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Right? So we see that man has a responsibility, that man has chosen sin. And so we also see God's hardening in verses 38 through 40 as John quotes Isaiah as he talks about the hardening of hearts. But Paul also speaks to this in Romans chapter 1, verses 24. He says, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And so what Paul is teaching us there, teaching us what Jesus is, he says that as we pursue things that are not of God, as we pursue idols, as we pursue things of this earth, that God gives us over to our own destruction. And that is the result of our sinfulness, that we ultimately get what we want. We get the due penalty for our sin, and with that, the hand of God is in the consequences of our choice. And that's how we see God's sovereignty on display. And so as we think back to John chapter 12, we also see that this hardening of hearts, it's also a fulfillment of prophecy as John links to Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah 53. And so what this tells us is that Scripture had to be fulfilled. The Scripture had to be fulfilled, and it was fulfilled in those who do not believe. So in Isaiah, what John is referencing, God told Isaiah that his ministry would be unproductive. And that it would make people close their ears, that they would not want to listen. And that God would send Isaiah to the people in order that his hearers would not listen. And so Isaiah's ministry, John is linking that to Jesus, because Isaiah's ministry finds ultimate fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus. That unbelief is necessary for the fulfillment. That the cross, as we're coming up to the cross, that cross is the dividing point for belief. 
that the cross will judge some and will save others, that there is no redemption without unbelief. And that's why not everyone is saved, that there is no redemption without the cross. We saw that plainly last week. And so look at how R.C. Sproul explains all of this, what's happening in John chapter 12. He says, God does not force people into sin and then refuse to rescue them from it. However, he sometimes turns a sinner over to his sin, which is the most ghastly judgment any person could ever receive from the hand of God. That is what happened to the people of Israel in Isaiah's day. And God did the same thing in Jesus' day. Due to the rebelliousness of the people, God judged them with the inability to repent. Even though the message of salvation was being compellingly presented right before their eyes. And so where does that leave us? Where does that leave us today as far as application? And so what this should teach us, what all of this should teach us, is that we are called to repent and to believe. Think about this verse, John's purpose verse for writing this entire gospel. We've gone over this many times, but look at John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. We want to remember John's entire purpose for writing this gospel for us. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these are written so that you may believe. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, by believing, you may have, you may have life in his name. So John, John is calling us to believe. That is his entire purpose in writing this gospel to us. And through this gospel, we see that Jesus, he is calling us to believe in him. These signs and miracles, they point to his divine purpose, that his teachings point to who he really is. And as we take his signs, as we take his teachings together, we have abundant proof. We have more than enough proof of Jesus' divinity, him being the Son of God sent to take away our sins. And so today, today Jesus is calling us to hear his word. He is calling us to understand his word, and he is calling us to bear fruit. And so he lays out this choice before us. We either believe in the light or we reject that light. And so God is calling you, he's calling me to that choice today. That choice is still as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago because people will still reject the evidence, right? People will still reject the miracles that Jesus performs. They will hear his teaching and they still won't believe. But my request of you, right, don't let your heart be hardened. Do not let your heart be hardened by unbelief. And so Jesus calls us, to repent and believe. The second thing that we see, the second application that we have, is this should motivate us. This should ultimately motivate us to share the gospel. This gives us motivation to share the gospel. Because when we talk about this, the nature of unbelief, sometimes we draw a false conclusion that because God hardens some people's hearts and not others, 
we think that, oh, we don't have to do anything. That God just chooses, he chooses who he wants, and he's going to do it, and so we have nothing to do. And I want you to know that Scripture does not teach this. He, scripture does not teach this, and I can't emphasize that enough. If you look at verse 44, we see that Jesus cried out. He called out to the people to believe in him. He gave an urgent appeal even, even as their hearts were being hardened in their own sin. And so in the same way, we are called to cry out to others, that we are to follow the example of Christ, that God wants to save people, that he desires all men to come to the truth, to come to a saving knowledge of him. That is truth of scripture. And so God uses us to call others to belief and repentance, right? So Tyler, come up here for a second. Tyler doesn't know that I'm going to do this, so he's going to be an example for me. So stand right there, Tyler. I can't move, so we're stuck. We're, we're, we're separated. So Tyler here, he is a person that is not saved, okay? He is a person that is not saved, but let's say this is this false conclusion. Let's say that God wants to save him, that God has chosen him to be saved, all right? So what happens if nobody goes to Tyler, if I do not share the gospel with him? I just stand put. I don't go. I don't share. What is God then left to do, right? And so what I want you to see here is that God does not say, well, shoot, Nobody's sharing the gospel with him, so now I have to just wave my magic wand and zap, and now he's saved. Like, God does not work that way, that he does not save people apart from his word, apart from hearing and believing the gospel. But also what we see in Scripture is that we do not change God's sovereignty. So just because me, just because you all, nobody shares with Tyler, that doesn't nullify God's sovereignty either. And so I want you to see that this is not what Scripture teaches us. But sometimes as we see this, we think of God choosing. That's the way that we start to lean. That's not how God works. All right, you can sit down. I just needed you as an object lesson. So Tyler does believe, so I'm thankful for that. So we want to see what does Scripture teach. And so look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 17. This is what Paul teaches us. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so what this teaches us is that God uses us. Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul really wrestles with this whole notion of 
unbelief. He wrestles with God's sovereignty versus our free will. But here, clearly in chapter 10, Paul gets explicit about what salvation is. And that is that God calls people through his word. He calls people through his gospel and that God uses us. He uses us to share his gospel, that we call people to faith and repentance through the gospel. That's how God calls people to himself, that people respond with belief from their heart. And people respond as they confess with their mouth. Because scripture says that everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that they will believe as we share the word of Christ. So stand with me as we pray. So Lord God, we stand, we stand in awe of your grace. Lord, that you would love us so much that you gave your life for sinful people. Lord, that you made a way for our salvation when we couldn't do it ourselves. God, and that is only, that is only by your grace. And so today, God, we ask that you would call people to yourself. We ask that people would repent and believe and that they would experience the abundant life that you are calling them to. So Lord, help us to follow you. Help us to call others to repentance so that they would experience the same grace, the same grace that you have lavished upon us. God, you are good, and we give you all the glory for how you are working in lives, how you are just showering us with your grace. So we thank you, we love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we, as we have this song of response, repent and believe. That is the message. Come to Christ. Come experience his grace, and you respond as the Lord.